Please remember that the Lucy Pod is not a replacement for professional medical advice. If you have questions or concerns about your own amazing brain, please speak to a medical professional. I wish to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which I speak to you all today, the peoples of the Kulin Nation. Always was, always will be Aboriginal land. Saturday the 3rd of June. Hello everyone and welcome back to the Lucy Pod. I hope that you are all well and are staying safe. I discovered an article published back in April, the 28th to be exact, of this year in the Financial Review titled Why Australia Risks Over-Treating Children with ADHD by Jill Margot, a health editor. I have of course linked the article in the description and I encourage all of you listeners to read it. I have read it several times. There are a lot of things that I've learned by reading it and there are a lot of things that I somewhat agree with and a lot of the things, a lot of things that I do not agree with that I want to discuss and demystify. Although this is not my first organic reaction, I do want to share my sort of semi-initial thoughts on the article. First and foremost, I'm glad to see that ADHD is in the news. Um, ADHD news is rarely like sort of discussed, like news in general doesn't really talk about it unless something major happens. And I guess in this case, something major did end up happening um, and it ended up in the news. But either way, I like to see it. Of course, it is, you know, probably being forgotten. It's been, you know, a month or two um, and something new and more scandalous and interesting to other people has come up and taken over but I am still interested in it I still care and I believe that it deserves to be talked about now without repeating and this becoming an audiobook uh, like of the article I do want to give a summary on it and my initial feelings uh, so to make it clear the contention of the article is that the Australian evidence-based clinical practice guideline for ADHD has recommendations that are deemed as inaccurate and not based on evidence and they view this as problematic because it has implications for people who are ADHD or also implications for people who think they are ADHD and who risk being overdiagnosed or overtreated with medication. The main gripe um, that the people have with this guideline was that the guideline describes itself as evidence-based, but only 12 of its recommendations are based on evidence and the remaining 101 are based on experience and opinion. I have also um, attached the guidelines in the description that they're referring to. And I completely understand if you do not have the time uh, to read it all because it is very long. Um, so there is a guideline summary uh, attached as well. Uh, and this is important to have a look at. Anyway, out of the 12 recommendations, nine have very low quality evidence. The article cites um, and quotes many professionals in the field. So it's not just like a write-up from this editor just sharing their opinions. They are bringing in experts. Uh, but what stood out to me the most in the article was the following. We are worried that Australians, including parents of young children, will be misled into thinking these recommendations are based on solid evidence when they are mostly the opinions of those who believe drugs, particularly amphetamine-type stimulants, are an essential part of treatment of ADHD. And this came from a child and adolescent psychiatrist. And look, at first glance, to me, it sounds like they are inadvertently or not so inadvertently, but like subtly trying to say that 
medication is not the way and that children should not be taking them. We know how I feel about medication. I'm a bit, big advocate of ADHD medication. I believe that ADHD medication when prescribed by a doctor and is managed properly between the patient and their doctor can have amazing effects and change, changes one's life. Uh, and of course, no one is obliged to take medication. It is not compulsory, nor is it a cure. I'm not saying that, but I am a big believer that medication can work. And I really hate the demonization of medication and of people taking medication and children being medicated. Now, of course, I think children should be protected and no child should just be medicated for no reason. It needs to be discussed. Of course, it needs to be monitored. But I don't like the way that people believe that, you know, in cases of ADHD medication, like that it's always like something sinister and that the parents have, you know, drugged their kids and forced them and it's just bad parenting. I really dislike misrepresentation of reality and facts. Uh, we always tend to latch on on that one bad example of that friend of a friend of a friend's dog sitter having a bad reaction and then making that the basis for not liking medication um, or not liking children give their kids medication, uh, parents giving their kids medication. So I, I just find that uh, problematic. Uh, and of course, like in many cases of ADHD, medication is not the way for some people, but for some, it is the only way that they can function. And to argue that this is not the case is untrue. Medication can be amazing. And in my case, and for uh, 70 to 80% of people with ADHD, it is life-changing in the best way. The article also discusses the cost of ADHD and how expensive it is and how much it costs not only people with it, but also the government. And they reference a really um, interesting study that was done by Deloitte that I've actually spoken about before. Um, and you can also find it in the description. And it's really worth a read. It's very interesting to read about the sort of economic cost of ADHD. We tend to talk about the mental cost of living with it, which is deeply important, but we really talk about like the actual cost, the monetary cost. So that's definitely worth a read. And it will be, of course, as I said before, in the description. Uh, they also raise the issue of labeling the article, raises the issue of labeling ADHD as a disability by including it in the NDIS. Now, this is sort of complicated for me because I do think that ADHD should be on the NDIS or diagnosis and medication and that whole process should be means tested and more accessible. Um, and I think that by it being on the NDIS, that could be a step towards that. But to say that people who are advocating for it to be on the NDIS is them advocating for it to be seen as a disability is a misrepresentation because it is not the case for everyone advocating for it me being one of them. Now, if you want to get into if ADHD is a disability, I don't know how to have that conversation, to be honest, because for me personally, I, I believe and know that I am ADHD. I shouldn't say I believe because then it sounds like I'm like, I think I am. No, I know I'm ADHD. I was diagnosed and I view myself as neurodivergent. However, I do not view myself as disabled. I, I am not disabled. Uh, I am not physically or mentally disabled. So this is a hard conversation to have for me. 
I feel like it would be inappropriate for me to be classified as disabled. I feel like that would be a misrepresentation of my ADHD and my reality. However, ADHD is definitely a spectrum and it affects people in different ways, which means that another person who has ADHD obviously experiences it completely differently and could have a type of ADHD that makes them incapacitated and disabled. However, I think the conversation about ADHD and disability is very complex and there's, an old, there's a lot of nuance. And I would actually like to hear from people who are disabled on what they think. And I think that would make the conversation more nuanced and easier to have. So I'm not going to get into ADHD, is it a disability? I'm not, I'm not going to have that conversation. But I want to make it clear that not everyone who is talking about ADHD being added to the NDIS is asking for it to be viewed as a disability. But I also do want to make it clear that some people have ADHD and they also have comorbid conditions, which actually renders them completely incapacitated and means that they are disabled and that they need extra care and extra assistance. So I don't want to discredit that either. But essentially the article is kind of a write-up or an evaluation on the strengths and weaknesses of the ADHD guidelines. And as we can see, I agree and disagree with a lot of the things that were being stated. And the things that I disagree with point to a broader issue, issue around how we view ADHD and its treatment and how we view it as overdiagnosed when it's actually not. ADHD is actually criminally underdiagnosed. And the way in which we act as though that by having increased awareness about ADHD or by having these guidelines, it means we're going to see this epidemic or uptick in diagnosis is very irrational and a form of fear-mongering, in my opinion. Later that day. Okay, so let's talk about these guidelines. So the guidelines were created and provided by the AADPA, which stands for Australian ADHD Professionals Association. And the guideline is called Australian Evidence-Based Practical Guidelines for Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder, and in parentheses, ADHD, first edition, 2022. And that is the one that I'll be linking in the description. The guideline was produced by the AADPA in collaboration with the following organisations, the Australian Psychological Society, the Royal Australian and New Zealand College of Psychiatrists, the RHCP, Your Health in Mind, Speech Pathology Australia, Occupational Therapy Australia, the Australian Clinical Psychology Association, the ADHD Foundation, whoop, uh, World Federation ADHD, and the Australian Association of Psychologists, Inc., ADHTWA and ADHT Australia. So a lot of people, a lot of organisations. The corresponding author is Mark Belgrave and he's the president of the AADPA. The article, sorry, the guidelines also have a disclaimer, which is that this guideline is a general guide to appropriate practice to be followed subject to healthcare professionals' judgment and the person's values, preferences, circumstances and needs. This guideline is designed to provide information to assist decision-making and the recommendations included within are based on the best evidence available at the time of development. And I think that this is a really important disclaimer that I believe the article overlooked. And uh, yeah, so I think 
I think that. Uh, the publication of this guideline was approved by the Australian Government National Health and Medical Research Council. In fact, the guideline recommendations on page 12 to 13 of the document were approved by the Chief Executive Officer of the National Health and Medical Research Council. It is, uh, the guidelines are 202 pages, so I understand that people may not have the time or energy to read it. However, I have attached the summary below so that you can read that rather than going through the 202 pages. I understand if you may not uh, want to. But I am going to read the first paragraph of the abstract because if I read this entire abstract combined with the entire guidelines, we would be here for months. It is very long and there's a lot to say. So, the Australian Evidence-Based Clinical Practice Guideline for ADHD aims to promote accurate and timely diagnosis and provide guidance on optimal and consistent assessment and treatment of ADHD. The guideline outlines a roadmap for ADHD clinical practice, research and policy and in the future with a focus on everyday functioning and quality of life for care based on age, gender, culture, setting and geography of people who are living with ADHD and those who support them. So let's get into it. So let's talk about these guidelines, what I like and what I do not like. On a somewhat like superficial level, I really like the way in which the article, sorry, the guideline, I keep calling it the article, the guideline booklet is organized in the way in which there are a couple of pages that show you how to understand the acronyms of it and the language that they use because sometimes it can be really hard to read through political or medical jargon. So it was actually really helpful uh, and a layperson like myself could read and understand it without being confused by the language. So I think that this document is already very accessible to people. I also appreciated the way in which it highlighted the at-risk or vulnerable individuals who are impacted the most by ADHD. I think that this is really important because we forget that just because ADHD is not deemed as a disability or a mental illness, that it does not mean that it doesn't impact one's abilities and mental health, especially if you're already living with a disability or a mental health issue, plus ADHD. So I think that this distinction that they made was very important and very accurate and astute. Also, just the way that it was structured, the guidelines, and you'll see what I mean if you get a chance to look at it, even if you just skim or have a glance. I really like the way that it was set up. It was very pleasing to me. I also really appreciate that when it gets into treatment and support, that it encourages clinicians to explain to people and parents of ADHD that there are multiple ways to deal with and treat ADHD, and it's not a one treatment fits all. Um, and I think that the fact that they highlight this is a very important. And although this claim was not evidence-based, I do think that it is a solid piece of advice and something that all clinicians should apply, um, you know, in whoever they're treating, because of course, not all one treatment fits all. And it is important to inform your patients, regardless of the condition, that there are multiple things that can be done and it's up to them to decide what to use. So whether or not it is evidence-based, I do think that that is a sound piece of advice. It sounds like common sense. And of course, this guideline is to be like taken and used in like indiscretion by 
medical professionals. So they know how to interpret this, which is important because they are the ones who are treating the ADHDers and dealing with them and their families. So whether or not it's evidence-based, it sounds like common sense. And I think you could apply that to a lot of things that one size does not fit all and you can't make blanket rules for things because nothing is nothing is black and white, unfortunately, except for movies, um, certain movies. That was a bad joke. But here is uh, where I start to understand why the article was written and why there are people who have issues with it because here's the thing. If you want to make a strong case for ADHD and a strong case for recommendations, it really does help when you have evidence, people are more inclined to believe it and rally to your cause when you have facts and evidence. And even though this might be frustrating and that people need so much evidence to believe that ADHD is deserving of care, it, it makes sense. And I think I understand why they think it weakens its cause because whilst a lot of the recommendations are incredibly astute, they are not necessarily evidence-based and that makes it hard to legitimize ADHD and whether or not it makes it hard to legitimize ADHD in a medical setting or a general setting, we want it to be legitimized everywhere. So I do understand why they think that it, it falls short. Even later that day, now, I really want to get into and discuss ADHD medication, which is my main issue in general and my main issue with the article and just the conversation around, you know, as I said, ADHD in general. But before I do that, I just want to make it clear that I am incredibly tired of this whole overdiagnosis claim because it's it's kind of impossible for ADHD to be overdiagnosed because it is impossible to actually access appointments and to get diagnosed and I talk a lot about this and I actually talked about it in my previous episodes um so to say that something is you know so hard to be diagnosed is being overdiagnosed is a misrepresentation and increased awareness of ADHD does not mean that people are getting overdiagnosed no one says this stuff when it comes to increased awareness about, I don't know, uh, breast cancer or other conditions or illnesses. People don't say, oh, well, now that we're talking about breast cancer on TikTok and on the Instagrams, we're seeing all these young people thinking that they have breast cancer. No one says that because it's not true. It's, it's inappropriate. And that still stands for the case of ADHD. And I'm just... I'm just really tired of people's experiences um, and their ADHD being downplayed by people saying that it's overdiagnosed. That actually creates more barriers to diagnosis. I respect and I understand skepticism uh, to a certain extent, but I do not understand an outright denial and refusal of ADHD. You know, I think if I had a, I don't want to sound like, but if I like, like that TikTok sound, I'm not on TikTok anymore, but you know that TikTok sound where it's like, if I had a nickel for every time someone says that, I'd have a nickel. I'd actually have like a billion nickels whenever I hear people say, but it's not real. It's overdiagnosed. It's just bad parenting or nah, it's just kids having red dye. Nah, it's just kids being on social media too much. I would be 
a billionaire. I would be able to afford to open up my own ADHD clinic and make ADHD accessible. It's a really tiring, broken record phrase. Uh, and I just want to make it clear that uh, ADHD, it's very hard to get diagnosed. And especially for women, because historically women's health and bodies and needs have been... Uh, hate to use the buzzword, but sort of gaslit. Women have really be been believed in medical settings. Um, and so, you know, girls with ADHD definitely slip through the cracks. Uh, and that's even in the case of, you know, autistic girls. They completely slip through the cracks. They get misdiagnosed with anxiety, depression, BPD, when they don't realise that undiagnosed ADHD can lead to anxiety and depression. It can be a comorbid condition. So, I find it tiring that this article echoes those sentiments uh, and I totally get that these are clinicians speaking so it's not the same as just random people on Facebook or in my life who have no credentials talking so I don't want to take that away from them uh, but I do think that you know that part of the article was slightly biased. Anyway let's talk about medication. Now I want to make it clear that before we even go too deep into medication, I want to make it abundantly clear that ADHD medication is an approved and legal form of treatment for ADHD. Stimulants are legal. It has been researched and studied and it has been legalized and, and accepted as a form of treatment for ADHD. Now, of course, it does not cure ADHD and it does not necessarily work for everyone. And no one has to take it if they don't want to, but it does work. And a study showed that there's an over 80% chance that one responds to medication. And all of these studies will be linked in the description. So if I do forget to cite them or mention them, they're definitely in the description, but I'm going to do my best to remember to cite them. Um, I have them here with me, but, you know, as I, you know, with the ADHD and I talk fast sometimes, it happens that I might forget, but... I'm definitely going to do my best to cite them, but they are 100% in the description. Uh, this episode is going to have a very, very long uh, description. So according to a study done by the Child Mind Institute, which was stimulant medications for ADHD, Ritalin or Adderall, it states that within the group of 80% of people, 50% will respond equally well to the two main classes of ADHD medications, which is methylphenidate, Ritalin and other brands, or amphetamine, which is Adderall and other brands. Of the other 50%, half will do better on methylphenidate and half on amphetamines. So I just want to get it out of the way that ADHD like medication doesn't really work and that it's this new thing that has suddenly popped up and now we've just started, you know, prescribing it to people. That is not true. It does work. I'm one of the people who it works for. I have no side effects and I love being on medication and I think I'll be on it for the rest of my life, which I've talked about in a previous episode. But to talk about ADHD medication in a productive way and to demystify and to destigmatize de it, we need to actually talk about what ADHD medication is and what it is not. And not only do we need to talk about the fact that it actually works, we actually need to talk about what it is, like what it means, because I think a lot of people fear and reject things that they do not understand because when any other, you know, Whenever we hear a word like medication, stimulant, that sounds 
scary. It when you hear the word methylphenidate or amphetamines, we I can tell you we think of speed, cocaine, we think of drugs, we think of people abusing drugs. That that's that's what you think. You're like, oh god, like that's oh, and kids are on it. So I completely understand why people are might be a bit a bit not even grossed out, just a bit fearful because it it's it's a very um it's a very strong word. So what is a stimulant? ADHD medications are pretty varied. There's not just one that treats all. So if you are on a particular medication, whether it's short or long acting, whether or not it works for you, you can discuss it with your psychiatrist um, or your prescriber to talk about what doses may work. Some people will prefer a short acting medication. Some will prefer long lasting some will have to play with dosages till they get it right. So I'm not going to specifically talk about uh, types of like brands of ADHD medications because there are so many and they're all different. But I want to talk about like as a baseline, what is ADHD medication? Like what does it do? So ADHD medication works in different ways depending on the type, but all ADHD medications work by increasing the levels of important chemicals, neurotransmitters, in the brain. These neurotransmitters include dopamine and norepinephrine. I probably butchered saying that. I'm going to <laughs> put this in the description and you can read what it is. It's from the Cleveland Clinic. I'm sorry. I really feel like I butchered that. So increasing the amount of these neurotransmitters helps improve the symptoms of ADHD, including increasing attention span, reducing hyperactivity, controlling impulsive behavior and managing executive dysfunction. And like I said, ADHD medication affects each person differently. What works for one person may not be effective for you or the child or your child. And the first ADHD medication you or your child tries may not be the right one. It might not be effective. So continuing on about what ADHD medication is. So there are, like I said, different types of ADHD medications. I'm not going to go into the brands, but uh, let's talk about uh, like stimulants and non-stimulants. So ADHD medications include stimulants and non-stimulants. Uh, healthcare providers often prescribe antidepressants as well, which I'm not going to get into. Uh, so stimulants. Stimulants are the most common type of prescription medication that healthcare providers use to treat ADHD. Despite their name, stimulants don't work by increasing your stimulation. Rather, they work by increasing levels of certain chemicals, neurotransmitters in your brain called dopamine and the other one, which I'm not going to try and pronounce. These Neurotransmitters uh, play important roles in your ability to pay attention, to think, and to stay motivated. And studies have shown that approximately 80% of children with ADHD have fewer symptoms after finding the correct stimulant medication and dosage. So stimulants are controlled substances. They consider controlled substances, which means they do have the potential to be improperly used or cause substance use orders. However, if they're under the care and supervision of your provider, stimulant medication use is safe. Uh, and I'm actually going to link an article, several articles in the description about ADHD medication and substance abuse, because a lot of people think that you can get addicted to ADHD medication and that's why you shouldn't be on it. Um, so I'm going to link those and I actually might do a separate episode uh, all about this. So let's continue on. Stimulants are, what was I saying? So yeah, so before you are prescribed a stimulant, your 
provider usually has you do a bunch of tests, which I'm going to get into later on. But basically, they are a controlled substance and the word stimulant is somewhat uh, misleading because it doesn't stimulate you and it's not like taking you know, speed or cocaine where it makes you high and, you know, really energetic. It's, it's not like that. It stimulates parts in your brain. So anyway, there are two forms of stimulants. There's immediate release, which is short acting. Uh, and then there's extended release, which is intermediate acting or long acting. So the immediate release or short acting, you normally take these stimulants as needed. They can last for up to four hours. And when people have uh, with ADHD are coming down off a short-acting stimulant dose, they experience, they can experience what's often considered to refer to as the crash or the rebound effect. And it typically involves a really like sharp decrease in energy level and it can cause hunger. Um, and some people experience an intense drop in mood or depression. Some people, it can be like that. It isn't like that for everyone. And then there's extended release. Uh, so you typically take these stimulants once in the morning um, each day and in my case I take one in the morning and one in the afternoon I used to be on the immediate release some last from six to eight hours while others last up for up to 16 hours longer acting ADHD medications may result in fewer ups and downs during the day and may reduce the need for extra doses at school or uh, during work so many people supplement an extended release medication taken in the morning with an immediate release dose taken in the mid to late afternoon. And this sort of extra dose may help cover the late afternoon to evening hours after the earlier dose starts to wear off. Uh, but obviously you shouldn't play around with your doses without talking to your doctor. So if you are taking any sort of medication and you're wanting to do anything with it, don't do anything with it unless you have talked about it with your doctor. And most stimulants or medications fall into one of two drug classes methylphenidates or amphetamines and drug classification group medications together by their similarities such as active ingredients or approved use and then there's the non-stimulants so they're prescription medications but they're not controlled substances substances like stimulants that means they're you're less likely to improve um, improperly use or become dependent on them and they work by increasing the levels of neoropyphrine in your brain. Oh my God, that's so embarrassing, that word. Non-stimulant medications for ADHD take longer to start working than stimulants. You might not feel the full effects of them until you've been taking them regularly and some say from approximately like three to four weeks. But these medications can help you improve your attention, uh, focus and impulsivity, and they can work for up to 24 hours. Uh, they might, so the reason, uh, you might be given, uh, non-stimulants, uh, is stimulants aren't effective for you. You have intolerable side effects from stimulants. Um, they want to try pairing it with a stimulant to increase effectiveness. There could be a myriad of reasons. Uh, but there aren't as many non-stimulants currently available for treating ADHD. These drugs are prim primarily the norepinephrine reuptake inhibitors or alpha-2 adrogenic agonists. Uh, do you see what I mean when medical jargon can become a lot? Yeah. The medical, that guideline I was talking about really helped me understand. <laughs> so now that we have an understanding of what stimulants are, we need to talk about how people get them uh, because we're acting as if it's like really easy to get stimulants and that you can simply walk into a convenience store or a pharmacy and get these medications like 
that and that, you know, people are just doling them out and prescribing them with no care in the world. Uh, and we act and that's not true. So we actually need to talk about the process of it. Still later that day. Okay, so let's talk about the ADHD medication prescription process, which is quite complicated and arduous. The things that I will be discussing and referring to, I will definitely be linking in the description. I am using information from the Victorian Department of Health. So what I'm talking about will obviously vary from country to country and state to state, but I'm talking about it from a Victorian uh, context. So keep that in mind. So the main thing that we need to make clear, the key messages, as it's said on the site, is that uh, most medic medical practitioners have to have a permit before, before prescribing amphetamine, dexamphetamine, listexamphetamine, etc. Some exceptions apply for pediatricians and psychiatrists, but most practitioners need a Schedule 8 permit um, to prescribe uh, Schedule 8. So what is Schedule 8 medication? So Schedule 8 poisons, uh, which are labelled as a controlled drug, are medicines with strict legislative controls, including opioid analgesics, for example, fentanyl, morphine, oxycodone, methadone, and bupropion, uh, etc. So medication is not just this, ADHD medication is not just this willy-nilly thing that people give out like amoxicillin. Uh, you know, GPs can't even prescribe uh, Valium and Xanax. So there's no way that they're, you know, just prescribing uh, Ritalin and Concerta and Vyvanse because they feel like it. It's taken very seriously. There are rules and it's very, very serious offence if you do not follow the rules. Because whether or not I medicate, ADHD medication is amazing for me, it has the potential to be harmful if you do not need it. Because as we know, taking medications that you don't need can not only hurt you, but they can kill you. So that's why that there are, you know, laws around this, especially like, you know, other medications that mention like fentanyl and such. We know exactly why that is a uh, schedule eight. So I just want to make that clear that you, you, you do need a permit. Um, there are some exceptions for pediatrics and psychiatrists. However, uh, they're very, very sort of uh, special, um, special circumstances. So, First of all, let's do like a little role play, a little scenario. So let's say you have been diagnosed with ADHD. Now, obviously, this scenario will vary from your type of ADHD, the person you go see, your access. But generally how it's meant to go is you will be diagnosed with ADHD and you will have a conversation with your doctor or your parents or all three of them or all three of them or both of them. And you will possibly bring up wanting to have medication. So let's say you've been diagnosed, you want to be medicated. You will talk about this with your uh, practitioner at length. And they will also decide whether or not they deem you uh, an appropriate candidate for medication. Your ADHD may not be as severe. Your medication, the medication may not work for you. So that that's the first step of the conversation. There's a talk about it. You can't just go in to see your psychiatrist or pediatrician and be like, I want to go on ADHD medication. There's a long conversation. And I remember when I was diagnosed, I was diagnosed as a child, uh, when I was, well, as a teenager, I was 13, um, by a neuropsych. And I went to see my pediatrician and with my parents, of course. And, you know, I expressed wanting to try medication and my parents were actually the ones on the fence. Uh, 
we talked about it as a group and then she made my parents leave the room and she was like, are you sure that they're not making you try or anything? I said no and she talked about it at length with me, what medications were, the side effects, uh, what could happen, what would happen if I didn't like them, the other solutions and what I can use in sort of um, addition to medication. So there's a conversation uh, then they usually will order tests to be done before you take medication because remember they are stimulants and some can have side effects and sometimes if you have certain pre-existing conditions medication can be not necessarily risky but can be a bit problematic so I had to have blood tests done to check that everything was okay in particular my liver and so once those tests come back clear and your uh, practitioner thinks, okay, it's appropriate for you to start medication, you will come in for an appointment and they will usually have their permit number and they will have a series of numbers that allow them to ring the Drugs and Poisons Bureau for them to be able to say, hello, I have patient blah, 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 this is the license number and I'm requesting a script for this ADHD medication uh, to treat the patient who is ADHD, they are aged, blah, blah, blah. And the Drugs and Poison Bureau will say, okay, yep, that's a valid permit. You've done this and that, and that's their name. Okay. And then a prescription will be sent through. You will look over the prescription. Your doctor will explain, this is this, these are the details. And then you will go to the pharmacy and it will be given to you. If you are a minor, your parents will be present throughout this process and they'll obviously be there to pick up the medication. Um, so it's not just like you don't just go in. You actually like that because you know how when you go into the doctor and like you ask for amoxicillin, they just like print out the script like they don't have to do anything. They don't have to ring anyone or do anything. Yeah, that's not how it happens when it comes to schedule eight medications. They need to make sure that they have done the right thing and that their request gets approved. Uh, and when their request gets approved, it means that they've done everything properly, obviously. So it's not just this thing that people like, here, you can have it and you can have it. You're not visiting Oprah. There's a process to getting medication. Uh, and a lot of the time, people who get diagnosed with ADHD and who then want to start medication can't even get a bloody appointment to start it. So there's already that barrier. Not only is it a very regulated thing, it's even hard to just get the first step, which is the appointment. It's even hard to just get diagnosed. So it is a very complex and serious uh, process. So yeah, it's rather complex task. It's not taken lightly. It is not something that everyone has access to and it can be made very hard for people to get this medication. Now, of course, you know, even after hearing this information in this episode and just listening to previous episodes of mine, you may still not agree with me. You may still feel that medication is an inappropriate or unnecessary um, form of treatment for ADHD. Or you might just think that ADHD isn't real and therefore we're just drugging people. And you know what? That's fine. I, I'm not here to change every single person's mind. Um, there are going to be people who disagree, of course. That's how the world works. But I I do like to inform the people who are disagreeing um, that their basis for their disagreement may be wrong. And I think by providing them with more information, they may still disagree. 
but their basis for it will actually be based around a bit of fact and not myth. And if that is the case for some of you who are, you know, listening, I am happy with that. I I can't change everyone's mind. That would be exhausting. And I, I can't get into a back and forth with every single person who disagrees with me because we would all be wasting our time you know, we have busy lives. But if I have just managed to inform someone that, oh, I thought ADHD medication was this, but it's actually that, then I feel that I have done my job. Uh, Even people who are pro-medication or who are on medication, who have learned something, I I am, I'm happy with that. You know, we're not, we're not here to change everyone's mind. We're here to educate people. And I think that If you are really interested in learning, whether you agree or not, and you actually want to be well informed, you will definitely read the resources in the description. And in particular, the one about ADHD medication and substance abuse, because that's sort of an issue. It's a very uh, serious issue because substance abuse is serious. And I understand that there's a concern about like, what if you can get addicted or what if you already have an addiction and you're ADHD and you're being prescribed medication, you know, that sounds like a recipe for disaster. So there's some really interesting studies that I've put in the description that sort of um, explain this and sort of uh, ease people that could ease people's uh, concerns uh, about the matter. So, yeah. Well, that is it, my listeners. Please let me know if you liked the structure of this podcast I almost wanted it to be a sort of come along with me and let's explore this topic together and let's research this topic together kind of like a behind the scenes and a sort of chronological Wes Anderson order so if you did like it please let me know I really really hope that this uh, episode helped further demystify and destigmatize ADHD medication because there is a lot of misinformation surrounding it and even though this article was not sinister or baiting in any way I really wanted to address some of the points that they were making and it actually helped me better evaluate the guidelines that were being proposed and it actually allowed me to see their point of view and it also had me take on board some of you know their viewpoints and their critiques which made me better understand and evaluate the guidelines And I hope that this episode does that for some of you, whether you disagree or not. Uh, And in the spirit of disagreeing or not disagreeing, I would love to hear your views. So please share them in the comments or in the reviews or in my DMs. As I always say, I really do like having productive and civil conversations with people who agree with me and who disagree with me. So if you have thoughts or questions, I would love to hear them and receive them. Now, do not forget to follow me on Instagram and Facebook and LinkedIn at the Lucy Pod, and of course on my website, the Lucy Pod WordPress. Do not forget to stream and follow me and rate me five stars on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. And of course, now that I have a YouTube channel, which is the Lucy Pod, like and um, subscribe to my channel. And take care. Bye.